Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our live Tanker and IMO 2020 forum. We've had an exciting week and a half. We've hosted several Tanker companies, taken a trader perspective, talked to a couple of fund managers, uh, spoken with the VLCC fixture experts. We've seen some interesting volatility in the market as the phase one US-China deal was signed. We're now looking forward to hosting DHT. We have their co-chief executive officers on the line today, Ashvine Harshfield and Shrikva Month. They're here to discuss the tanker markets from the perspective of a BLCC pure play with about half of their fleet equipped with scrubbers. Before we begin, just some disclosures. We're recording on the morning of 16 January 2020. Uh, so if any uh, stock disclosures are provided today, those may be different if you're listening at a later date. I do have long exposure to DHT holdings at this time. Nothing you hear on the call today constitutes official company guidance or investment recommendations in any format. With that said, welcome Shvine, welcome Trigva. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So we have to have you here to discuss the VLCC markets. I mean, DHT is a VLCC pure play. Uh, you recently disposed of the last of your Aframaxes. You have about half of your fleet uh, equipped with scrubbers. Uh, so as we begin the call this morning, just wanted to ask you, how is the IMO 2020 progressing to date? Uh, how is that impacting the tanker markets? And have there been any surprises so far to date? I, I think, you know, things are progressing not too differently from what uh, uh, what we had reason to expect. Um, we saw it towards the end of last year that the, uh, the spread between compliant fuel and uh, old-fashioned heavy fuel oil has been coming out. Uh, what's encouraging to see is that there seems to be only minimal issues regarding availability of compliant fuel in most ports. And um, uh, we've heard, heard some rumors about uh, um, sort of the spec issues on the compliant fuel, but have really had, hard, had a hard time uh, pinpointing what ships in what locations and, and in any sources. So at this point, I think it's, uh, it's more of a hearsay than it's, it's actual, actual facts. So, um, some people argue that there could be more in store as far as IMO effects, simply because the availability of compliant fuel has been based on inventory buildups before January 1. So, so far we've been really uh, uh, been supplied from, uh, from things that were uh, put on, on floating storage before uh, the start of the year. Um, of course, if this uh, becomes uh, um, more complicated going forward, you could argue that it will be more constructive for the uh, freight rate picture, simply because if there are hiccups, uh, be it logistical or uh, spec-based, um, it is going to cause inefficiencies in the sailing fleet. That's an interesting transition. We'll, we'll have to keep watching that. And of course, the, the compliant fuels were, were starting to be produced uh, over a year ago. So we, we did have that sort of inventory buildup. Uh, have you noticed any sort of uh, changes or indications in the market in, in terms of the available supply? I mean, I know when, when we started off, we, we had spreads in around the 250 range in November. And then those spreads you know, they ramped up into, you know, mid-December and the start of January. I think we got up to about 360 at some points. And now those spreads have started coming back down again. Do you do you think that's natural that those spreads are going to start tightening maybe down to 200, 250 range? Or, or do you think maybe there's a chance that there'll be some sort of shortage coming up? It, it seems to us that these spreads have been a bit uh, all over, if not all over the place. It's varied quite a bit uh, geographically. So we've seen much bigger spreads in the Middle East, in Fujairah and what you've seen in Singapore and so forth. So 
I think it's still early days to have an firm opinion on where these spreads are going to uh, move. But over time, I would certainly think that uh, uh, the spreads are going to start coming in. But uh, you're not going to hear a number for me in guessing on, on fuel oil spreads uh, in the future. It's also, you know, keep in mind that uh, for the big ships like the, the VCCs, there's a very limited number of bunkering ports that you tend to use. So the majority, of course, has been done in Singapore, but uh, with the significant uh, you know, exports out of the Middle East, uh, Fujari is also a very important uh, bunkering hub. And that area is sort of naturally long HFO. So uh, hence, you have a wider spread than uh, in Fujari than what you see in Singapore and, uh, and Rotterdam. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. And we, we saw a huge spread initially. I think uh, Fujairah had the largest spread in the world uh, temporarily. And then, of course, it was it was larger than Rotterdam and Houston and uh, Singapore being some of the other major ports. Um, can you remind us on, on the current progress of your scrubber program? I know you had a few scrubbers. I believe it was six that you ended up deferring a little bit to take advantage of the rates. Is that still the case or are you sending those ships in to get scrubbers installed? Well, that is uh, still the case. So our approach to this is a bit uh, optimistic. So um, when the freight market really came roaring in, uh, sort of the cost of taking ships out of service uh, was, in our view, deemed too high to, to, to do this. But uh, we will definitely do this project. It's more a question of timing. And uh, we'll uh, follow the market closely and see if there are sort of good pockets uh, to do this. Uh, we have both equipment. All the engineering is done. We have shipyard capacity available. So. So we uh, we could uh, really afford ourselves the luxury of of, of, of waiting. We're, we're definitely going to uh, put these uh, six scrubbers on on the ships. So there's no sort of change in uh, appreciation for uh, for uh, scrubbers as an investment case. And uh, it is quite interesting to see now how the uh, different fuel oil prices and the different fuel economies and the designs of the ships how it plays out and. And uh, you know, the, from a, an older or conventional tanker without the scrubber, all the way up to an eco ship with scrubbers, you're talking about the rate difference in the very high twenties dollars per day. So that is that is big money, especially uh, when rates are lower, of course. Then it could be uh, being a difference of um, not meeting your cash break even for the older without scrubbers, to actually making a very decent equity return on the other one. So. It is uh, becoming a bit more uh, nuanced, the whole uh, tanker market. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a phenomenal spread there between, I guess you would say, the old vessel without a scrubber, right, all the way up to the modern eco vessel that also has a scrubber. And you, I think you said high 20s, right? And and that complies with what we've seen, you know, with Clarkson's. They put out index reading. And, yeah, we're, we're talking maybe $25,000 or higher per day, which, as you mentioned, is is phenomenal, right? Because you could have one yep. ship that's that's pulling in, you know, 40,000, which would say in Q2 or something, they could be pulling in, in 40,000, which is a, a very strong rate for Q2. And yet at the other, at the same time, you could have an older vessel, right? Without a scrubber that's only getting 15,000 and, and might even might even be scrapped. So it's a very, uh, very interesting bifurcated market. Uh, just to clarify, so you, you have about 10 scrubbers on the water today, is that correct? And then we're waiting on the on the next six. Is that the right number? We've got 12 uh, ships uh, in the water with scrubbers and another six to wait. So. Excellent. Yeah, I think I guess it was 10 that you installed scrubbers on, right? And then there was two new builds uh, that came with scrubbers, so 12 and then waiting on six. Is there any sort of indications for, for maybe like a second wave 
of, of scrubbers in terms of like reassessing the market in Q2 or Q3, or do you think uh, kind of 18 is your max? We have no current plans to add anything for, for DHT, but uh, I guess with the spreads now, sort of the economics of the project might uh, seem attractive for people that sort of are coming late to this party. But that being said also, of course, uh, you're pushing out the potential payback uh, scenario. So if you're going to plan to do this now, it will easily take you six to nine to 12 months to get it done. And uh, then you need to have a view of the spread in 2021, uh, really, uh, as opposed to the current spread. And uh, that might still be good, but there's maybe more uncertainty than, uh, than what we see now. So. And of course, the alternative value of the time that it takes to do the retrofit has gone up quite dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, certainly, certainly makes sense that there's a delay, and then of course there's the installation costs and also the opportunity costs of strong rates. Uh, so it would make more sense that if the spreads remained elevated, right, and then the rates kind of came back with seasonality into Q2 or Q3, then maybe some folks would would make that decision. Uh, can you remind us? Because I know you're opportunistic with your shipyards. Uh, how does your optionality work? Like if you decided maybe next week that you wanted to add your scrubbers on those other six. Uh, what sort of delay would we have? Would that be, you know, a month or two months, or, or how long would that take? We have sort of a go-to yard where we do all our dry docks and uh, also where we've done all the retrofit projects, and uh, we are one of their top customers. And uh, we're not really sort of uh, sharing all the details of this relationship, but we do think it offers us, uh, you know, ample flexibility in how to go about this. But keep in mind also these ships are on long voyages, so you know, the average length or duration of a VHC voyage is somewhere between, you know, say around 60 days easily. So it's not like you can stop in the middle and, and, and do it. You need to finish the business you're in before you go ahead sort of uh, with a project. So I think also we could say that we have we're penciled in yeah. slots for these ships. So uh, my keyword is pencil, but uh, to give you an understanding that it is a bit of lead time. So. There is uh, there are some slots available for us, and uh, uh, again, uh, the ambition is to get the work done within the year. I think in in general, you know, we really benefit today of having planned all this, you know, well ahead of IMO 2020, uh, having done uh, you know all the sort of acquisition of equipment, all the engineering preparation with yards you know, the, all the fuel management preparation, et cetera. So it makes it sort of easier for us to, to maneuver and, and, and operate in this environment than maybe another company that is maybe less prepared than, than what DHT is. Yeah, it's clear that you're a little bit ahead of the curve with at least, you know, 12 scrubbers on the water now as, as you look at your fleet and, you know, it's nearly half of the fleet at this point. So uh, one other question kind of in the market, it kind of related to IMO 2020. We, we've heard some discussions of a pickup in floating storage, uh, both of compliant fuels, but also of the HSFO, uh, especially off of Singapore. Have, have you seen any pickup in that activity and is that something that DHT is involved in? We have, uh, you know, certainly seen reports uh, um, confirming that there has been or is floating storage of uh, different types of fuel in Singapore area. Um, but your second question, no, this is not really business that we are eager to do. I think this is typically older vintage ships that uh, may be more difficult to, to actually trade in the freight market. And then uh, it's sort of a last hurrah or last hurrah for these guys to do some storage business. But we are not really entertaining that. But of course, we're enjoying the benefits of it because it's taking some capacity out. Although 
there is a, a, a number of ELCCs that have really retired into just being uh, in the storage business rather than the trading business. But the majority of shit around Singapore today that are storing, uh, you know, uh, or ELCCs that are storing are for compliant fuels. And they're sort of either partly or, 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 or fully loaded. So there's not that much HFO that we've seen uh, being, being stored. And, and, and there's surely some, but the majority is compliant fuel. Certainly, certainly interesting to see that. And it makes sense that the, uh, the storage uh, vessels would be the older, uh, less attractive, less commercially viable vessels, right? That, that don't have to you know, move around and, and have a less efficient burn rate on the engines. So certainly makes sense to see that. And I understand you're not really interested in that part of the market, although it does help take off some of the, uh, some of the vessels that aren't moving around. Uh, let's, let's kind of shift a little bit to Costco sanctions. You know, that brought a significant number of ships off the market last fall. Can we briefly discuss what that impact was and, and how many ships you think it was that were taken off the market? And then secondly, uh, have you noticed any change in the last couple of days in regards to Costco sanctions? I know we had the U.S.-China phase one deal. Uh, has there been any talk about Costco in particular, or are those sanctions still on, on place? From the intel that uh, we have uh, uh, received, we understood that there was maybe up to 27 ships that were out of service at the most, the ECCs that is, and uh, that uh, there still are several ships uh, out of service. But it's a bit uh, cloudy, the whole situation. So uh, we uh, have a sense that there are some of these ships uh, potentially involved in China Inc. business. So it's not like uh, all these ships are necessarily out of service as we speak. But again, it's, uh, it's a bit hard to, to get specific information on everything. And some of these ships might uh, opt to turn off their, um, their AIS. So it's hard to put to pull them and, and, and so forth. Yeah, it seems like there's been a lot of varying news on the market. We've heard, you know, anywhere from 20 ships all the way up to 40s. And we, we've heard lots of different details about maybe some of them are doing some regional trading, some are doing storage, uh, maybe some are just sitting empty. Uh, so definitely, definitely a lot of information symmetry out there in regards to that nuance. Uh, have you heard any details about those ships coming back in, in recent days or are those still, uh, still uh, applied by sanctions, according to your knowledge? Uh, we have no uh, information recently that there's any change in in the situation, but of course it's easy to speculate that this could be part of a sort of a trade deal, right? So, but I think if that is the case, uh, there will probably be more good news for our business in a trade deal than a potential impact of, of a few ships coming to the market. So, I don't think that uh, should be such a great concern. Let's uh let, let's unpack that a little bit because you mentioned that a trade deal would be positive for your business. Is is that just in terms of the China to U.S. Uh, you know expected imports right out of the U.S. to China? Um, and, and if so, how do you expect that to impact the market? Uh, you know, we're not saying it, 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 it definitely is, but I think it's easy to think that uh, for one, a trade deal could support uh, general economic activity, and that uh, tends to be good for good for shipping. And then, of course, if oil is part of a, a particular transaction, it would be a sort of easy give for the Chinese to ramp up uh, purchases of U.S. Uh, shale oil. And that will just add to the ton mile and transportation distances. Uh, so, and frankly, just be simply very good for our business. And I think it also importantly would bring some stability into the U.S. Gulf to uh, Far East trade. Because today that is, if not arbitrage driven, it depends a bit on relative pricing of WTI to rent and, and, and whatnot. But if, if it's really becomes a part of a, a deal 
then I think it would be uh, uh, less uh, spread or arbitrage sensitive and there will be a more of a steady stream of oil going that very long route from uh, Texas to, uh, to China. Yeah, that would be it would be very positive for the market to see China take a lot of volumes out of there, of course, because we're, we're talking about double right the ton mileage between each cargo. So we're, we're hoping we'll see that. Uh, it remains to be seen, of course. We we have seen the overall details of the trade deal phase one, and of course, it does include significant oil purchases. Uh, but we'll have to make sure and, and see if if that deal is complied with. Uh, pivoting a little bit, uh, you know, last week we, when we started this conference you know, the, the sentiment in the market was very strong, right? It was almost kind of euphoric to a sense and uh, a little unnerving at points. But, you know, as we've entered the last, you know, week or so, we, we've seen the rates come off uh, significantly yesterday, actually. And then we've seen the stock prices sort of falter as well. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? What, what sort of indications are you seeing in the market uh, regarding the recent weakness? And is that something that concerns you going into 2020? I think, you know, volatility in our space is uh, sort of par for the course, right? It's uh, it's uh, just the way tanker shipping is. And uh, when you are in a strong market as you are, of course, the nominal numbers uh, from sort of the swings within the week, it could uh, be daunting on people. But uh, I think people should focus now on uh, average earnings for periods. And uh, we are at sort of still at levels which are well above what most analysts predict for the whole of 2020. So uh, uh, to sort of to trade stocks uh, just on the, st on, on, on the spot market might be a sort of a challenging task and it could be scary for, for many people. But I think the, the underlying thesis uh, in our space that there is simply more oil in the Atlantic going east and expanding the transportation distances and the demand is still uh, robust. That is the underlying thesis. So uh, there will be volatility still in, in the freight market. And if it comes down a bit, it will very likely go up again. So, Just as an example on that, uh, in 2015, uh, the last sort of strong tank market, or very strong, we averaged about $65,000 a day for the full year. But nevertheless, in, uh, in the mid the third quarter, we saw rates in the teens. So I think it's important that everybody that's investing uh, in this business realize that volatility is still there even when you are in a very strong market. And of course, you're going to see peaks and uh, uh, way north of $100,000 a day uh, within the same year. But it's uh, for, the, for, the, for the, the beginner in this, uh, this space, it is quite staggering to see the, the short-term volatility. Yeah, I think a lot of we had a lot of momentum players and, and traders and, and such that joined kind of the tanker party, if you will, um, kind of over the last few months. And, and maybe they weren't expecting the seasonality. It's, you know, the, the timing is good. I, I actually put out an update report and I'll, I'll share it with you, you gentlemen later. But I, I posted a chart of the last, you know, two decades of tanker rates. And you can see that during the last super cycle, which, of course, was a phenomenal run right from 2002 to 2008. Uh, there was something like eight total collapses in rates, right? Where rates would go from like 70 or 80,000 to like 20,000 in, in just weeks. Uh, and that was part of a super cycle, right? So it, it's definitely a volatile sector and, and it's good to see that obviously you understand that. And hopefully the more, uh, as more investors kind of join the space, uh, there's a little bit more understanding of what's going on out there. Um, besides the general, you know, economic concerns, are, what sort of bearish uh, events or, or anything in, in 2020 are you looking out for? What, what could actually derail the market as opposed to just temporary volatility? 
you know, analyzing um, shipping markets, uh, the supply side is easy to get your hands around. And we're fortunately in a situation where there's not that many new tankers being delivered into the fleet this year. And importantly, for the first time in a long time, we do have significant uh, numbers of ships that are ready for retirement. They're sort of reached the end of their economic life. So that really means that we're not going to have a destruction of this market from the supply side. So then if it, if it is to come down hard, it's got to be because of demand. Um, so that would be a type of a macro event uh, that could derail it if we saw significantly weaker global um, economic expansion and uh, if we uh, for some reason went into further inventory drawdowns for, for oil, that would be a negative. But to remind everyone, we've been in an inventory drawdown for quite some time and we, we are not really at very high inventory levels. So, so we think it's, um, it's, a, it's a small probability of a, a surprisingly short-lived upcycle uh, at this point. So we continue to be optimistic, but you, of course you should never rule out uh, the tail end scenarios. It definitely makes sense to, to pay attention, right, to the global macro fundamentals as well as looking at the order book and, and so on. And we're hoping the order book stays low. At the order book numbers are, are very, are very promising now, as long as we don't see a rapid pickup in orders. And of course, if we do see a rapid pickup in orders, this would be for late 21 or later. Uh, but still, right, we, we want to see this this market stay strong as long as possible. So that is something to look out for. Um, as as we have the the recent surge in rates and the recent surge in cash flow at DHT, you've kind of outlaid your scrubber strategy, right? Uh, but can we talk about the rest of your capital allocation priorities? I understand you're going to pay a variable dividend. Uh, what other priorities do you have in this market? Are you looking at debt reduction? Are you looking at secondhand purchases, uh, potentially any new builds? Uh, what sort of stuff are you uh, looking at with that cash? Our policy on this is, is very straightforward and uh, it has been in place now for five years. It has been changed. Uh, it has not been changed over that time frame. So we're saying that minimum 60% of ordinary net income is to be returned to shareholders every quarter. Um, and that would typically mean cash dividends. And then the question really becomes, what about the other 40% uh, and maybe the delta between uh, cash flow and P&L? Well, we're pretty clear on that. In this point of the cycle, our preference or priority is to strengthen the balance sheet. We're not looking to add ship, uh, ships to the fleet. We think that the time you should buy is really now behind us. It's in the trough of the market. That's when you make the good acquisitions. Values have come up enough for us to sort of take the foot off the accelerator. And um, the excess cash flow is going to be used to, uh, to really prepay uh, debt. And why do we do that? Uh, simply because we think uh, in order to survive the cycles and in order to maximize how you do the counter-cyclical investments, you need to have a, a very strong balance sheet in the next downturn because that's the only way you're going to be able to pick up the dirt cheap assets. If you pay out everything and you're dependent on raising equity at the bottom of the market, well, that's going to be a massively dilutive equity offering. So, so we are very focused on building the strongest possible balance sheet through the upcycle. But of course, at the same time, returning the very handsome 60% to, to shareholders.
Yeah, it's certainly a responsible and, and balanced approach. Uh, of course, your balance sheet is, is quite strong already. We, we have debt to assets uh, sitting in the mid 40s. And then, of course, your convertible bonds uh, are very close right to that that uh, takeout option. I know uh, my understanding is it's 130% of the conversion multiple, which I'm not sure if we're at it today or t yesterday, but the last few weeks we were at or above those those levels. So if you if you do the convertibles, uh, that brings you down to, I think in the mid thirties, your leverage. Um, what sort of target leverage do you have for the company then? Is it, am I basically hearing you correctly that you're, you would strive to get as close to zero net debt as possible? Or is there maybe a point at 25 or 30% where you say, okay, that balance sheet is, is stable enough here? I think that the balance sheet is plenty stable enough for where we are today, but you need to think a, a couple of turns ahead. And uh, so, so our objective for leverage depends on where we are in the cycle. And uh, we would like to come into a, a bear market or into the next downturn, uh, ideally with zero debt. And uh, let's be frank, if you have zero debt, you can pay meaningful dividends even in the, in the tough market because cash break even at that point is going to be around $1 a day. And if you look at historic numbers, the worst three years over the past 20, I think as per Clarkson's, you have seen average rates in the very high teens. So that means, you know, eight, $9,000 per day per shift in uh, distributable cash flow. And 60% um, of that is not going to be so bad, even in the, in the bottom of the market. But the point is that you then have, a, if you get to a debt-free fleet, you can lever up on that in order to buy, uh, buy the assets when uh, everybody else is just running for cover or scrambling to make ends meet on the cash flow. That's why we're um, wanting to de-lever in the good times. When you get into the recovery, then it's fine to have leverage, of course, like we had going into this one. Yeah, of course, it, in the perfect executed cycle, you would have, of course, right, zero net debt or, or even just a positive cash balance, right, in the trough. And then uh, and, and as the market starts crashing, you'd have no debt, then you would lever up by very cheap assets. And then as the market starts accelerating, your, your leverage would be quite high or at least higher, right? And then, of course, that leverage comes down. So that would be the perfect way to play it, you know, academically speaking. And it's good to see that you are taking a prudent approach to it. Uh, with, with a payout policy of 60% of earnings, you know, you're retaining, like you said, you're retaining 40% of earnings, plus you're also retaining, right, the delta between that depreciation. So it's it's a pretty significant amount of deleveraging that plays out. Um, I did mention the convertible notes uh, real quickly. Uh, can you remind us, uh, just from your perspective, how those come into play in your capital structure? Is there a, uh, a chance that those would be converted in the near term? Well, the strike is uh, certainly well below where the stock is trading, uh, but I think uh, thinking ahead, this is sort of the type of uh, capital that we strategically doesn't need on our balance sheet. So our game plan is to take it out uh, when it falls due. But uh, of course, it, it could convert before that, and that's uh, out, you know, not in our hands. So, uh, but the, the lessons from the last uh, bond we had was that. Uh, it didn't really convert uh, until the due date. So it was trading in the market and that's sort of the way for people to, to, to make money on it. Yeah, well, we'll see what, what transpires in the markets there. I, I believe there's a provision that allows it to be taken out at, at 130% of the strike, which we're pretty close at this point, but I guess we'll just have to see how that transpires. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot about the current market. We've talked about uh, capital allocation priorities. 
Um, is there anything, I guess, that we're missing big picture here in the markets in terms of, you know, both IMO 2020 and, and current rates uh, that you think the broad market just isn't quite uh, understanding at this point? I think, you know, all the talks about IMO 2020, Costco sanction, all these aspects are more sort of cherries on top uh, in, a, in a market that uh, fundamentally looks very, very healthy. And so we think we are sort of in the early phase uh, of, of, of this recovery. And uh, certainly, if you look at the way the business is positioned, it's a reflection of us being bullish uh, for this year and next, uh, at least. And uh, everything is sort of really uh, sort of lined up to be very rewarding for, for people investing in tankers. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely there's a lot of bullish sentiment, of course, in the with the owners and, and some of the more long term investors. But it does seem like the broad market is, is far more skeptical. It doesn't seem like we've we've had that sort of pickup yet. We we had a lot of momentum traders that sort of hopped on the last couple months, uh, but even with right even with that boost in the stock prices, uh, many of the names are still trading at or below NAV, right? So there's there's definitely a, a disconnect right between the bullishness we're seeing uh, from the companies and from the managements and from people like myself and from what we're actually seeing in the market. So it'll be interesting to see how we can close close that disconnect. Given, given that we are in a market where you know most of us are printing significant amounts of cash, uh, you will sort of have a little delay in seeing that cash being distributed to shareholders. So once you know earnings are reported, people declare the difference. Uh, us in particular, uh, you know this could of course change people's focus and see that this is for real. So. Yeah, we're, we're certainly hoping that's the case, and we're, we're hoping that when your Q4 results come out and you provide your Q1 guidance, uh, that the investors will see the the enormous right earnings and dividend potential. Uh, I think investors will also appreciate your balanced strategy, right? Paying the dividends, being generous with that, but also being very, uh, really conservative, honestly, 40% plus uh, depreciation is a rapid, rapid pay down considering how strong your balance sheet already is. Uh, one sort of market nuance I wanted to touch on is time charters. We have not seen a lot of time charters either in one year or three year rates or two year or any of that, right? We we, we just haven't seen a lot of that. Uh, where do you think the current rates are for those time charters? And at what point would you be willing to start to take some cover and, and balance your chartering strategy a little bit? The term market for uh, large tankers is not very deep. So, uh, so there's little activity. I think uh, most owners today are a little bit sort of apprehensive to do one-year deals because it's not very different from being in the spot market given the length of these voyages. Uh, there were done a few deals ahead of the market uh, at very low rates that we were certainly not interested in entertaining. So uh, if you look back at how we behaved in the last up cycle, we did uh, do some time charters, although a limited number, but uh, we tried to do as much as we could. And uh, in due course, uh, we will certainly entertain that. But uh, we, we do think it's a bit early, and um, it has to have sort of a meaningful uh, tenor uh, to, to make sense to us. So, And uh, we're not really promoting a price tag for time charters on what we want to do. So we will manage this as, uh, as the market develops. And we do think we have a customer base that includes uh, clients that do like time charters. Uh, so... Um, so there, there will be some fixed income at some point in DHT, but it's a bit early with it. Yeah, it seems like the bid-ask spread between what companies are willing to pay and what ship owners desire in this market is very wide. 
and it just seems like the one-year uh, spread just has not uh, has not found any bids yet. And of course, as you mentioned, the longer-term two, three, four, five-year uh, time charter market just doesn't doesn't really exist right at this point. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, I don't know if you can answer this, uh, and if you can't, that's fine. But have you, in terms of reporting uh, your Q4 results and Q1 guidance and that sort of thing, um, is that expected to be towards the end of the month, or is that going to be a February event? Have you have you placed any of that stuff on the calendar yet? No, we have not. But uh, if you look back in past uh, performance, so to say, we've typically been in the uh, beginning of the second month after the quarter end. Okay, yeah, that's definitely the historical trend, and it sounds like we can continue to see uh, sort of that same historical trend. Is that right? Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think we've uh, we've covered a lot of stuff this morning. Uh, you do have provide interesting perspective from just that VLCC uh, outline. I think we hit some of the IMO 2020 things. I, I know we we've seen a little bit of panic in the stock market with the uh, prices of of shares kind of dropping the last week, and and I think folks not really understanding the volatility of the markets. Uh, I think we had a pretty good call this morning. Is there anything else that you would like to leave us with in terms of uh, DHT and your positioning for the upcoming year? No, I think we'd just like to say thank you for um, showing interest in, in DHT and uh, wish you a good day. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Fine and Trigra. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for joining another edition of our Live Tanker and IMO 2020 Forum. We just hosted the co-CFOs of DHT Holdings, Fine Hartfield and Trigva Month. We are recording on the morning of 16 January 2020. I do currently have a long position in DHT Holdings, uh, but if you're listening to a recording at a later date, please be advised some of these holdings may have changed. I also have positions in ancillary, crude, and product tanker companies. Nothing you heard on the call today constitutes investment advice or company guidance in any form.